Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. I am happy to be back this week with another music educator in our great state of Georgia. This time, I am joined by Alex Wasserman. Hello, Alex. Hello. Thanks so much for making the time to speak with me today. Let's start with a first question, background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Well, I am primarily a pianist and piano teacher. I'll start with what I do today and then I'll give a little bit of background on how I got there. So I teach at Reinhardt University and uh, I'm a professor of music there. I teach piano, the primary piano teacher at Reinhardt University. And uh, I've been there since 2013, but full-time since the beginning of 2017 school year. So I teach private lessons there, as well as some classes. And then I have a home studio as well. I'd say most of my students are high school aged, a few that are a little bit younger than that, but most of them are high school aged and I uh, teach private lessons. And professionally, that's at least on the teaching side of things, that's what I do. And I think that really in order to be a good teacher, you have to be a performer as well. You have to be kind of in sort of down in, in the trenches with everyone else and actually doing it. So, and it's something that I enjoy as well. So I do perform quite a bit and most of my performances are solo or concerto appearances. And I do some chamber music occasionally. In fact, I actually have a, a CD that'll be released later this year with the principal oboist and principal bassoonist from the Atlanta Symphony. And it's a CD of chamber music uh, with a few solo pieces as well. So that's kind of the long and short of, of what I do. How I got there, well, worked very hard. You know, I, I went to excellent schools for my training. I went to the University of Southern California for my undergrad. And uh, I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music for my master's degree. And then I went to Peabody Conservatory for my graduate performance diploma. And then I went back to CIM Cleveland for my doctorate. So you know, I had excellent, excellent training, kind of went to all the right places, but that's not enough. I mean, there really has to be a tremendous drive to, to make a living as a musician. Just having the degrees is not going to do it for you. So, you know, I've been very proactive about making sure that my concert career stays active and full. It's been a little bit tough in the last couple of years, but things are picking up again. And as far as teaching goes, you know, that's a, a little bit trickier in a way because, you know, there are so many great teachers out there and how do you set yourself apart? That's a little bit of a tricky one. Uh, for me, I'd say that when I started teaching privately uh, in Georgia, I moved here in 2013 and I started teaching some private students. And when I got students that I felt were serious students that could do well in competitions. I started, you know, actively entering them in competitions and so forth. And then as they started to do well, my name got around and it was really more of a word of mouth thing. And now I'm at the point where I'm fortunate enough to have a waiting list in my studio. So it's, it's been a long road and I can't say that there's exactly one specific key to all of it other than having your eye on the prize, knowing what you want your career to look like. You have to have that very clear first. But I wanted to teach at university. I knew I wanted to teach privately and I knew I wanted to perform. And so it was just a matter of kind of navigating my way through all of the challenges on the way to that. 
Yeah. Can I make you back up all the way to the very beginning? How did you start in music? Did you start on the piano and how old were you? Mm. Okay. Uh, I have a little bit of an unusual case here. No, I did not start on piano. I actually started on cello when I was like five years old or something like that. And I think I was probably an okay student, but it didn't really, didn't really light a fire in me. All through my elementary, middle school, high school years, I played trumpet, which I loved. But it wasn't until I really found the piano that I knew that music was going to be the direction that my life was going to go in. And I didn't start piano until a rather late age, actually. I was 15 years old when I had my first serious piano lesson. Before that, I had taken, you know, some lessons. It wasn't particularly, I wasn't particularly committed at that point. I was a little bit self-taught on the instrument. But it wasn't until I was 15 when I really began to get serious about things. And I think, in a way, I, I like to think that that sort of helps my teaching because because when I was 15, you know, I had a lot of catching up to do. And I had to really think my way through all of the problems that playing the piano poses because I was conscious of that journey as opposed to, you know, going through that when I was five years old and I wouldn't be able to remember. I remember all of that. And so I, I hope that I'm able to impart that wisdom uh, onto my students as well. Yeah, can you break down for us a little more about that? Like, what were some of the obstacles that you remember encountering and how did you overcome them? Well, as we all know, becoming a pianist is not something that happens overnight. There are really two main challenges to it. There is the sort of psychological and artistic side of things. And then there's the physical side of it. It's really, uh, it's an athletic endeavor as well. So I would say in terms of the catching up feeling, I just had to get my, the passion was there. My ears were very good, but I really didn't know much about playing the instrument. You know, the, the, all of the difficulties, the technical difficulties that go into producing great sound at the piano. So that was primarily where I put my focus when I was young when I was 15. And it was just a lot of trial and error. I had a very good teacher. That was, that's indispensable. You have to have a great teacher. And she really helped to refine my ears and to really understand what good piano playing sounds like. And then it was, uh, from that point on, it was just uh, an incredible amount of practice. Mm. What was your practice regimen like at that point? Well, it's a little bit hard to remember that the actual day-to-day regimen, but yeah, I know the first thing that I had to get in order were all of my scales and arpeggios. You know, I, I didn't know the fingerings, if you can believe it. When I was 15, I didn't know the correct fingerings for scales and arpeggios. And I think through scales, arpeggios, Hannon exercises, Charney exercises, that kind of stuff, I was able to understand the basic mechanics of, of the hand and, and, and playing the instrument and so forth. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that when I was that age, I... I was probably, in fact, not probably, I know I was not as organized as I should have been about my practice. I was a little bit scattered. Maybe it's just a feature of my personality, but I was a little bit scattered at that age. I wish that I had been even more, I wish I'd had a more clear practice regimen. So I don't know that I can answer that question as in terms of what I was doing day to day in my practice. But what I can say is that I was learning the fundamentals and I was thinking very, very hard about understanding how the fingers need to work, how the body needs to work in order to play the instrument with ease. 
Yeah. So tying into that, um, thinking about that pivot from just a casual musician to a very serious one, do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a younger student got you hooked on music? Yes, I do, actually. And it wasn't one piece, it was a set of pieces, and they were the Chopin Etudes. Kind of a funny story. I fell in love with the Chopin Etudes. I discovered them. I was probably 14 at that time. I have a very good friend, one of my very best friends that was studying piano at that time. And he introduced me to these Chopin etudes and I just couldn't get enough of them. I remember I would put the CD, I had a CD of uh, John Browning playing all the Chopin etudes and I would put it on every single night when I was going to sleep. Not exactly relaxing nighttime music to listen to, but I, you know, I, I loved it. So it was, I think after I discovered the Chopin etudes through, through this friend of mine, that's when I knew I wanted to get more serious with things. It kind of sparked something in me that hadn't been sparked before. And so I went to my very first lesson when I was 15, trying to play Chopin Opus 10 number eight. I wish that there was some recording of that lesson because I, <laughs> I would probably think it was hilarious to go back and listen to what I sounded like. But I had sort of tried to figure out myself how to navigate a difficult piece like that. I think maybe I played a page or two of it and, and my teacher said, okay, let's, let's stop, <laughs> you know, let's take a few steps back. But uh, that, that was really what lit the fire initially. And then after that, of course, it was just one piece after another that I discovered that just made me more and more excited about the instrument. I think one of the great things about being a pianist is that we have so much phenomenal repertoire. You could, I mean, there's more repertoire than anyone could get through in a lifetime. So I was just discovering one amazing piece after another, and it was just kind of fueling that excitement. But the so, Chopin agents were the beginning. Yeah, the fascinating thing about the way that you answer this question that is different from everyone else that has been asked this question is it seems like your answer um, pivots on hearing a recording and that sparks the interest in the fire in you, whereas a lot of other people interpret it as like, oh, I remember studying this piece or learning a particular uh, okay. piece right. and it kind of jumpstarts them. So I'm a little curious about what type of music you were listening to prior to that. Like, were you in an environment oh where your family was actively listening to classical music? Well, yes, my, my parents are, are both professional musicians, hmm. classical. My mom is a choral conductor. And so I had a lot of the, the great choral works uh, sort of already in my ears. I knew, I knew the classical music world sort of existed out there. I was familiar with some of it and I knew that there was a lot more to explore. Before all of that, before about age 14, 15, I mean, I was like most other kids. I listened to a lot of pop music, you know. I liked classical music because I, I would hear it. It was in the house. It was, you know, it was part of my life through my parents. But most of the time, you know, I was listening to, uh, you know, rock bands and stuff like that. I enjoyed it. And that kind of faded away, actually, after I started studying piano. I continued to kind of listen to that stuff for maybe another year or so. And I just kind of lost interest in it after a while. It's nothing really against pop music or anything, but it just wasn't really, wasn't doing it for me anymore. Yeah, so it kind of seems like the music was waiting for you to get to a certain stage in your life and your in your kind of listening world, and then suddenly everything mm -hmm. comes together. Yes, that's, that's very. Yeah, that's fascinating. So let's talk about teaching. You've touched on it briefly already, but how do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? Well, my teaching philosophy is it's a lot to sort of boil down. I'm kind of a pragmatist. I don't like to spend a lot of time philosophizing, <laughs> you know, 
I like to get right to it and, and find exactly where the problems are and exactly how to address those problems and how to fix them. And I try to, to teach my students the same thing. When you play a piece and you think, well, is this ready for Carnegie Hall? Mm, no. Well, why isn't it ready for Carnegie Hall? Well, it's not good enough. Why is it not good enough? Well, it was sloppy. Where was it sloppy? Why was it sloppy? You know, that, that kind of thing. I like to go right to the heart of the issue and solve the problem. Uh, I'm a problem solver. I love that. That's one of the things I love about the instrument the most is certainly gives you enough problems to work on. And what I try to teach my students is how to identify those problems and articulate them clearly, and then to devise a practicing strategy tailored to fix that particular problem. So, you know, we all know, for example, that we should practice difficult pieces slowly. You know, that's kind of, that's a given. Practice slowly. Sometimes if things are, if they're difficult running passages, we like to practice them in rhythms and stuff like that. Those are all great ways to practice, but that's too general. If a student comes in and they're playing something and it's sloppy or they're this and that problem, I wouldn't just say go home and practice it slowly. It's just not enough. You know, there has, it has to be more specific than that. So I try to stay away from general things like that. And I try to think of it as if we, you know, I have a tool belt of many, many, many ways to, to practice the instrument. Let's look at what the problem is and let's find the right tool for that particular problem. So that's one part of my teaching philosophy. The other, other big thing with me is that I insist that my students listen to great pianists all the time. Because if you don't have in your ear the sound of great piano playing, I don't think you can really produce it. And so listening, developing the ear, refining the ear is a huge, huge part of my teaching. So I will always ask my students, you know, which pianist they've been listening to recently, what they like about this pianist playing, what they dislike, so on and so forth. So listening a lot, and actually I should say watching on YouTube most, most of the time, which is a great advantage that students have now that you know, I didn't have when I was younger because there was no YouTube. But being able to observe the great pianists like Rubinstein and Horowitz and so on and so forth, it's almost like having a lesson with them. You can go on YouTube and you can look close up at their fingers and see exactly what they're doing. You can learn a lot from that. So I encourage that highly with my students. Hmm. So I wonder these, these two pillars of your teaching philosophy that you talked about, the pragmatism and the listening, how much of that is from your own trial and error and your own experience as a pianist? And how much of that is something that you inherited from your teachers and something that you're modeling um, based on a previous role model that has been set up for you? I would say that comes from me. Hmm. I, I, that's, that's kind of, it comes from, from my own journey and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. For example, you know, if I'm playing, well, let's just take a Chopin etude, for example. I almost always have my students playing Chopin etudes at all times. You know, they all have a Chopin etude in their fingers because I think they're, they're so critical. But uh, let's say I have a Chopin etude that I'm working on and, you know, it's just, I'm not happy with it. You know, that's not good enough. I have to think why I'm not happy with it. Again, because I, I started a little bit later, mm. you know, I had to think that stuff through a lot more. And so I, that's what I try to, uh, to pass on to my students. Yeah. And then you, you were talking about in terms of your pragmatism, having a set of tools, you know, having a tool belt mm -hmm. to problem solve. I think a lot of us think of, you know, like 
practicing in rhythms or practicing slowly as one of those tools. But it seems like your tool belt has way more tools than. than Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, What are some examples of the other tools that you have? Hmm. Okay. So I recently had a student that was preparing for a recital and she was a little bit behind on her preparation. And there was one movement in particular that was, uh, that was just not coming together as quickly as it needed to for this recital. So I'd have her play it through and, you know, I could very easily say, okay, you just need to practice this slowly with the metronome and then just click it up one by one. Okay, fine. But that would take too long, honestly. There's a faster, there's a smarter way of practicing, I think. So the first thing that we did was I had her play all the way through and I made a note of any time there was something that was, uh, that was problematic. Okay. Then the first thing that we do is we go to all of those spots. And I say, I always tell my students when you practice, always go to the spots that need the most work first. I'm not the first person to say this, obviously, but then uh, we found a little spot that, that was a little sloppy or something. And the right hand was rather sloppy and uneven. And the left hand was not too bad, actually. The left hand was simpler. The right hand was a little bit more complex. So I had her play right hand alone. I said, okay, let's see what's going on. Well, right hand actually seemed to be fine right hand alone. And I thought, well, if the right hand seems to be fine on its own and the left hand seems so easy that you don't need to worry about it, obviously this has something to do with the left hand. And so I asked her to play the left hand alone, a very simple pattern and she couldn't do it. Bingo. There's the problem. Mm. So a lot of the time, the problems are not necessarily where you think they are. Sometimes we address the obviously difficult spots at the exclusion of the rest of it, which we think is easy. And then we realize when we try to take things apart that maybe the easy parts haven't gotten enough care Mm. and haven't had the attention that they need. Okay, so now let's say we've, uh, we've isolated that the, the right hand is actually not so bad, that it's the left hand that's sort of contaminating the, the right hand. Then we had to figure out how to work out this left hand. It had sort of a waltz-like jumping pattern. Well, the bass note was fine, but it was the first, the, the note right after the bass note, the first jump, that was the problem. Okay, where is the mistake in that part of it? Well, maybe it was in the third finger or something like that. Why is the third finger doing this? Oh, it's because your hand is not aligned properly behind the fingers, you know? So this is, this is the kind of approach that I like to take. And I think it produces good results very quickly. And it also, you kind of avoid the frustration of just hacking at the same thing over and over again and getting minimal improvement. But of course, that's why students need teachers because it's very hard for a student to figure out exactly where the problem is. And you may even figure out where the problem is, but then you don't know exactly why the problem is happening. Either there's a physical aspect to it that needs to be adjusted, or maybe you, you didn't know the harmonies. There needs to be a, a harmonic analysis there. And so my job is to find the weakness and then find out why the weakness is happening and then target it. Yeah, I think one word that comes to mind as you're describing this process is mindfulness, which is one of those buzzwords that has been, you know, floating around in the past few years. Um, And it seems like, you know, this idea of starting it slow and going up one click at a time, that requires less mental engagement. um, Whereas this requires a very acute and precise mental analysis. And so that seems to feed into that idea of mindfulness and practice. 
Yes, and you know, I, I see it all the time that that students they just kind of try to apply the same general practicing technique and just kind of hope that it works over time. But you can't hope; you have to you have to make it happen, right. and that requires a lot more sophistication in how you address the issues that you're trying to to solve. Right, right. What would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? Well, let me ask, what kind of, what do you mean by success? Mm. If, if someone wants to be a professional musician and be successful, they have to have talent. Talent has to be there. However, one can get to quite a high level and play the piano quite well, not necessarily having all the talent in the world the determination and hard work is clearly the bulk of it. The talent aspect, I think, is less important for those that just want to, to learn the piano and play for their own enjoyment and learn to play very well. However, once you start talking about a professional career, there is that certain something that you have to have. There's a certain kind of intuition that one has to have, a musical intuition and you might call that talent. That has to be there. But even so, I mean, that's not going to do it for you. Mm. It's really 99% hard work, really. Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking about this question more and more, and it does seem like there are like two um, variations or two aspects of talent. Like there's the mental talent and mental acuity that you were just talking about, that ability to analyze the situation and problem solve. But there's also a physical intuition that has to come alongside that can make it very, very difficult to explain. You know, you can get a really brilliant student that can analyze it, but can't physically um, make this idea actualize. I'm glad you brought that up uh, because oftentimes I'll see students that have that have a physical intuition at the instrument, but don't necessarily have the artistic and intellectual intuition and vice versa. I mean, you do see that pretty frequently. I'd say of those two, the more important one is the up here, the intellectual talent, the artistic talent. The physical aspect of it, I've met very, very, very few pianists that or students that had so little talent for the athletic aspect of playing the piano that it really held them back. That's generally not the biggest problem because those technical physical problems, those can be addressed with a good teacher and they can always improve. Mm. The other kind of talent is a little bit trickier. That Mm. one kind of just has to be there. I'd say I could think of maybe two or three people that I've known over my whole life who were brilliant musicians but physically it just, they couldn't put it all together, you know, Mm -hmm. or they, they were unable to, even with the best kind of practicing and the best sort of, even with the best teaching and the best practicing, most of the time that physical aspect is, it seems to be the most daunting, but it's actually the most solvable. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? How can they encourage and help them to succeed? Well, it depends on the age of the student. So I would say anyone that is below the age of, say, 15-ish, 
you know, depends on the student. There, there are some kids that are very mature for their age and some that are, you know, not as mature for their age. But generally speaking, if they're kids, the parent really needs to be enforcing the practice time because everyone deals with this to an extent, but especially the, the younger you are, it's really hard to know, are you spending all the, the time at the piano that you think you are? You know, sometimes you'll go to the piano and you'll practice and then you'll check your phone for a little bit and then go up, you know, go use the restroom and then come back and then you practice a little bit more and then a call comes in. Next thing you know, it's an hour later and you say, oh, I practiced for an hour. Uh, you didn't really practice for an hour. That's where having someone else, a third party to kind of really keep an eye and, and make sure uh, that the practice time is, is happening and that the student is practicing the way that the teacher asked. I think that's probably the most important thing uh, for a, a young student is to have the, the parent involved. Know, the parent should know what the teacher wants from the student. And then the parent should be really enforcing and making sure that they're, that they're doing exactly what the teacher said. What's the um, parental role for students that are above 15? I don't know on a day-to-day -day basis that there is necessarily that much of a role. Obviously, there's the financial support of, you know, paying for lessons, driving them to and from lessons, recitals, competitions, etc. But very few kids that are 15-ish, I'm just using that as kind of a rough number, 15 and older, very few of those kids are really going to want to have their parents policing their practice. So I'm not sure exactly what the role is after that, other than the the obvious with the financial support and all the other kind of logistical support that's needed. So would you say if a kid is 15 and is taking lessons and is not self-motivated to practice that perhaps that's a sign that lessons aren't for them? Not necessarily. I mean, everyone is, is everyone's different. You know, you kind of have to just feel it out one, you know, one by one. If they enjoy playing the piano, they want, they really want to get better at playing the piano, but they're not very disciplined in their practice, then they may need to just, you know, that might be a point at which I'd have a conversation with the parent and the student and say, look, you know, you really have to make sure that your kid is, is doing X, Y, and Z. Typically that's, that's not really the case as the students get older, but it definitely is when they're younger because they, it's just too much for a young kid to be able to manage. It's, you know, I would never tell my son who's, you know, if let's say my son was 10 years old, he's actually five now, but let's say he was 10 years old and, and taking piano lessons, I would never say, okay, just time to go practice. He wouldn't be able to handle it. It's too much. I would have to be there really supervising what's happening. Yeah. Do you have any books about music or teaching that you can recommend? There's one book in particular that has been really important to me over the years because it's just so much fun to read, honestly. And that's called The Art of the Piano. And it's by David Duvall. Mm -hmm. The first half of the book is descriptions of you know, all the great pianists of the past and present. And he goes into excellent, very, very good detail on describing their playing, what made them unique, what made them special, what made them famous. And he's able to really break down their artistic and, and physical approach to the instrument. And then the second half of the book is a survey of basically all of the standard literature for the piano. And he writes about all of the pieces. So it's a really fun book to read through. If a student is uh, surfing around on YouTube and let's say they, they come across a, a performance of a Beethoven sonata by Alfred Brendel that they really like, 
well, I want to learn more about this Alfred Brendel guy. Let me take a look at the art of the piano, turn to the, the page with, on Alfred Brendel, and you know, you can read all about him and it really helps to crystallize what makes Alfred Brendel, Alfred Brendel. Or let's say you play, uh, let's say you're playing a piece by Debussy. It's your first Debussy piece that you've played and you really enjoy it. Well, I want to learn more about Debussy. You know, what are some other pieces? I really like this one. What else does he have? Well, it's in that book too. And go through and read all about the different different pieces that WC wrote. So it's just really fun. And it's it's also it's on Kindle, you know, so you can take it with you. And sometimes when I'm bored, I'll just, just you know pull it up and just start reading about different pianists or pieces that that interest me or whatever. So I really like that book. Otherwise, I think there's just too many for me to really to list. I mean, I, I could get into that. Of course, reading about the composers that that you're playing is indispensable, but there's plenty written on the great composers. But if I had to pick one book, I would say it's The Art of the Piano. Yeah, I, I do have that book. And it was gifted to me um, after my master's degree, after I graduated by my piano professor. And um, it is one of those books that I reference frequently, um, both in teaching and giving it out to students to let them borrow and say, here, just read up on this. And the really wonderful thing is um, it recommends recordings for you to listen to. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, it recommends recordings. Actually, I, I should say I had the great pleasure of being able to play for David Duval just last week, actually. <laughs> I trust his his musical ears and, and his his description of piano playing so much that I thought, well, you know what, maybe I should go play for him and see what he has to say. So I did. And uh, it was great. I mean, it was fantastic. We, we had a great time and, and he had some excellent insights and it was really wonderful. But uh, that's, that's how influential that book has been. You know, after all of these years, I, I wanted to go play for David Duval myself and I did. So that, that was really, uh, that was really cool. Wow, um, that's great. Yeah. What, kind of, yeah. what kind of things did you talk about with him? Oh my gosh. Well, of course, we just talked shop a lot. You know, we talked about the piano. We talked about great recordings, great pianists. We talked about the repertoire, all that kind of stuff. As far as the specifics of the, you know, when I, what I played for him, that's a little bit tough to get into on a, you know, interview like this. He's very detailed. He was very, very detailed. And he changed the way that I heard some stuff um, in, in the pieces that I was playing, which is really interesting. I have to kind of take some time and digest what, what we talked about and I'll, probably take certain recommendations, certain suggestions rather from him and try to incorporate it so that it sounds natural and it sounds like mm. myself. But it was really just, it was really just talking piano for the, for the whole night. It was great. How exciting. Yeah. Do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? I am a hobby guy. <laughs> I just love lots. I have lots of different interests and it's just, I kind of go through phases. I get into one thing, I get into another. One really long lasting interest of mine ever since I was a kid has been aviation. I love aviation. Everything to do with aviation, airplanes, taking flying lessons myself. I actually built a two seat flight simulator, which is in my basement. <laughs> you know, all the instrument panels and controls and everything. So I really, really enjoy airplanes. And I think if I wasn't a musician, I would have been a pilot. Other than that, I mean, I, I, I don't know, maybe there are too many to, to, to list right now. At the risk of sounding a little bit corny, I would say the other thing is family. Spending time with my family is the uh, most important thing. So family time, having good, good social life is important to me. I love movies. I like most of the things that 
most people tend to like. But I'd say the one that's that's a little bit unique would be the airplane thing. That's fascinating. Do you ever use that flight simulator? All the time. Yeah. Oh. And what do I you do by all the it. time? Well, at what frequency? Well, several times a week. I'll do a flight plan, you know, I'll plan it all out and then I'll actually go through and do the whole flight. It's very realistic, actually. Pilots do use this, this particular software that I use. They do use it, uh, help them stay current when they're not flying. And so when I have time, it's usually late at night and it'll be kind of a short flight or something because I'm exhausted by the end of the night, but I don't really have time to do that kind of stuff during the day, of course. So if I've got a little bit of time at night after my son's in bed and, and all that, I'll play around with the flight simulator a little bit. So part of my ignorance, but is it possible to crash the plane in this flight simulator? <laughs> Every, everybody asks that. Everyone asks that question. Yes, it is possible. And that whenever people uh, mess around with it, you know, I'll say, hey, you want to try out the flight simulator? And they'll, the first thing they want to do is crash the plane. I think, why would you want to do that? <laughs> you know, the fun is learning how to fly it. So, yeah. but anyway, that's, that's uh, kind of a fun interest. Wow, that's very cool. So this is our very last question. What do you see should be the future and role of classical music in society in the 21st century? Well, I think a lot of people seem to be under the impression that classical music is dying. And oftentimes you'll hear, you know, things like the audience for classical music, look, they're all old people, it's dying off, you know, there's, but I've never really believed that. I, I've never believed that that's, that classical music is dying at all. First of all, there's waiting lists at like every conservatory in the world, practically. You know, there's probably more people interested in classical music now, maybe than, you know, at any time, other time in modern history. It's just that when you go to a concert and you see that there's not a lot of young people there, there are a lot of old people there. I think it's just that, you know, when people get to that stage in their life, when they have more money and more time, then they start being able to go to concerts. I should say, it's always bothered me when people talk about that as if it's a bad thing. Look at all those old people in the audience. It's like, well, so what if they're old? I mean, they're, they're there, you know, they're enjoying it. As far as the repertoire, we have this kind of canon of standard repertoire from the Baroque period through 1950-ish. And there's this thought that, you know, that music has been done over and over and over again. And it's, you know, we need new stuff and all. Well, maybe we do need new music, but it doesn't really matter if Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has been performed X number of times. The fact is, for me, I've only heard, you know, I've only heard it live as many times as I've heard it live. It doesn't matter that people generations before me have heard it a thousand times. So I don't believe that the music gets stale because it's been around so long. I don't believe that at all, because there are always people that are discovering these pieces for the first time. So, you know, I think that the, the canon of classical music that we have is, is around to stay. And I think that's a great thing. In terms of music that's being written now, I'll be completely honest. I know this is going to bother a lot of people, but vast, 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 vast majority of it doesn't interest me. I try to listen to it with, with an open mind and, and all of that. And sometimes I'll come across pieces that I think are, are pretty interesting or I, I you know, enjoy, but it's, it's rare. And even at that, I, I have, I've yet to encounter a modern piece. And when I say modern, I mean, maybe within the last, I don't know, 50 years or something. I have yet to encounter a modern piece of music that I think deserves to stand alongside the music of Beethoven and Brahms and Chopin and so on and so forth. But that's just personal taste. There are other people that feel completely opposite. So I think that the future of classical music is good. I really do. Because we have the great repertoire out there. 
And as long as we continuously have more people growing up and being exposed to this rep repertoire, uh, it doesn't matter how long it's been around for. Like I said, when you hear a piece of music for the first time, you're hearing it for the first time. And it, it doesn't matter to you that other people had he heard it a thousand times. Hmm. Wow. Thanks for that perspective. That's very unique and insightful. And thank you for this conversation, Alex. I've really enjoyed hearing your insights and your experiences and your thoughts. You're obviously a very deep thinker and a, a very thoughtful teacher. And so I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and to share your insights with our listeners. Thank you for that. I wish you happy teaching and happy students.